Hey, I've got two quick announcements before we get started. First, I'd like to thank a brand new Patreon supporter, Scott Strickland. Thank you so much for becoming a monthly donor via Patreon. Really means a ton. Really appreciate it. Second, my bi-monthly book email recommendation list is going to be coming out in the next few days. So if you're not on the list, you should get on there. I normally send out five to seven, sometimes eight, if I'm especially focused. Good books that I've recently read that I highly recommend. Obviously, I don't use your emails for spam or any of that kind of nonsense. It's just really good books that I've read and that I highly recommend. You can sign up on the website. Just go to mountainandprairie.com slash reading. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Russ Schnitzer. Russ is a Colorado-based conservationist and professional photographer whose love for the landscapes and people of the American West shines through in all aspects of his life. Russ is the Senior Program Officer for Natural Resources at the Gates Family Foundation, one of Colorado's most effective and generous conservation funders. As a photographer, he's worked with some of the biggest names in the fly fishing world, including Patagonia, R.L. Winston Rod Company, Orvis, The Drake Magazine, The Fly Fish Journal, and more. And to top it all off, Russ is a former hotshot wildland firefighter and smoke jumper. And as you'd expect, he has some amazing stories from that period of his life. Russ grew up in the Midwest, but he headed to Idaho for college and has never looked back. During and after college, he fought fires throughout the West. And through that challenging, intense, dangerous work, and at least one devastating tragedy, he learned lessons that he still applies to his life today. Russ's entire career is focused on protecting Western landscapes, and prior to the Gates Family Foundation, he worked for such notable organizations as Trout Unlimited and the Nature Conservancy. In his current role with Gates, he's laser-focused on finding community-driven conservation solutions for threatened landscapes. And during this episode, we go into great depths discussing his philosophies around effective conservation in the West. Whether you're interested in the nitty-gritty details of large-scale land conservation or lessons learned from a life of hardcore adventure, there's something in this episode for you. Russ and I were on a tight schedule, but we still managed to cover a lot and left plenty of room for a part two at some point in the future. We discussed the value of private land conservation in the West and the need for community buy-in and ownership for all conservation initiatives. We talk about the importance of agriculture from an ecological and economic standpoint, with some very specific examples from eastern Colorado. Russ also shares some stories from his time as a hotshot and smoke jumper, the lifelong bonds he formed with his teammates, the impact of these intense experiences on his life, and how he pushed through a terrible tragedy early in his firefighting career. There's so much wisdom and valuable information in this episode, so listen closely and check the episode notes for links to everything. Thanks again to Russ for taking the time to chat. Hope you enjoy. The way that I normally start these things is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time, 
and they ask you, what do you do? <laughs> How do you answer that? <laughs> I'm sure you love that question. Oh, I do. I love it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine like you, I, I always pause yeah. when I get asked that question because I still have to figure it out in yeah. my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, primarily, it's becoming easier now for me to say that I work for the Gates Family Foundation and I administer their natural resources program. Um, and through that, I am able to be involved in a, a lot of different conservation activities in Colorado. And that's an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's my primary. Um, you know, but in addition to that, I am a photographer, a little bit of a hack filmmaker, and I'm a dad. Yep. You know, those are the things that I do. And you do them hard, full speed. Got to go all in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've been – so I've been – doing photography on a professional basis since about 2007. Okay. Um, and I spent, so I first picked up a camera in around 2000. Got it. Um, but that was in response to, um, essentially, uh, a lot of years spent, looking at the world as still frames Mm -hmm. i always loved photos were you a artistic kid yeah yeah i was always drawing drawing yeah um and uh you know i i would have my drawings in competitions and stuff like that you know and um i i really have always been mesmerized by the impact that a still frame can have sure and that's just how I always have looked at the world. And it probably goes back to when I was probably five years old, mm-hmm. going to my great-grandma's house, and those stacks and stacks of old National Geographic. I remember that. My grandparents had the same thing. Stacks. Yeah, of, yeah. And I would spend hours flipping through them. Did you, at that point, did you think, like, I'd like to do that? I'd like to take these photos? Or Never. was it more just the whole adventure? It was just the adventure. Yeah. Those just things learning. are great. Man. Yeah. And... Learning about all of these different threads throughout the world, mm-hmm. and you know, whether it was environment or people and culture or art, there's so much out there to learn about and to appreciate. Like that's what really fueled the fire for me. You know, I I, I really became. You know, I was I grew up in in a small uh small community minnesota in in northern northwestern minnesota yep and that was that was the world i knew you know we didn't we didn't get uh we didn't get to travel heck of a lot yeah we went to you know every year we'd maybe get out to montana or something like that Mm -hmm. um, for a ski trip but you know north northwestern minnesota was that was the universe Mm -hmm. But when I got those National Geographics in front of me, and that's that's what fueled that curiosity, right? So that laid the groundwork. That laid the groundwork. That that's cool. And I, I had a similar experience. I remember. I remember. I go to my grandparents' house, and they'd have a stack of those things. And you think about how that was such a jackpot to find one of those yeah. stacks. Whereas now, 
like everything, it, there's unlimited info, and you can find that stuff. It's in the palm of your hand on the yeah. phone. And I think there's something to having to seek it out and search for it and look forward to it. And I think it makes you appreciate it. Or just it a come bit upon more. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just discover it. Yeah. Never even know that it existed. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about photography and about conservation. And, and one of the things I think is so cool about what you're doing is that I think a lot of people think, well, I, if I want to be a, a full-time professional photographer, I, I want to be full-time conservationist, whereas you're able to balance both of them. And I would guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they fuel each other, that you know, being, yeah. being deeply involved in the conservation world opens up opportunities or, or ideas about photography, and then the photography informs some of your conservation work, and it's kind of this cycle because you've – got a long history in conservation from Trout Unlimited to TNC. and So can you talk a little bit about that, That yeah. uh, how they work together? Yeah. You know, I read a quote one time uh, from a photographer um, who said, you can either do photography to make a living or you can make a living to do photography. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much one or the other. Uh-huh. And I've been really fortunate, I think, in being in a in a professional position to give me access to a lot of different stories. Yep. That, well, you say fortunate, but you earned that. I mean, that wasn't given to you. Well, there's it, a line out the door that people yeah, that want to be doing your, your job. And so you, there's I mean, some element of luck. Yeah. Involved, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I, I was, I was passionate about working in conservation. Um, it, I think it was, fueled a lot by my academic background but um you know i wanted to put my academic investment to good use yeah, and what did you study uh i studied uh, in uh, conservation social sciences oh cool uh, was undergrad and then graduate school was environmental studies with okay. uh, emphasis on rural sociology okay and it was always the human side of conservation issues that fascinated me mm-hmm. i think that a lot of that came from my background growing up in a small community agricultural community um understanding how uh how natural resources and conservation aren't just uh they aren't just mechanical things that take place i mean they're 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 deeply social and they're a function of these these uh deeply ingrained cultural roots and that, as as far as how natural resource decisions are made and how they impact communities and how communities themselves can create their own destiny uh, as voices for conservation, like that, that was that that continues to be my biggest motivation. Well, that's one thing I want to dive into, and I've got so many questions. But that that reminds me, we we've, we've talked about this before, but just the two of us. But this the importance of community and conservation. Because I think if you talk to the average person on the street, when you ask them about conservation, they think it's protecting some big landscape to maybe keep people out, let it be a wildlife refuge, just, you know, keep it, quote, pristine. Whereas a lot of the stuff that you and I are working on is this intersection of the landscape, the, the community, the heritage, all kind of coming together into this big package. It's extremely complex. And you and I have talked about how it's real easy for these people with conservation ideas to sit around and think think up these great ideas. But unless there is 
hardcore, you know, committed community buy-in to what you're doing, your your solutions are, are nothing. That's that's something that has really been reinforced for me recently. Uh, you know, in the past six eight years, um, you know, it, it, the the traditional approach to environmental work has been to you know let's study something, let's you know do the white paper, let's uh, uh, you know, get the science, and let's make some recommendations for policy changes for you know, regulatory, administrative, whatever it is, all that is in a vacuum. And, you know, I, I go back to what I learned growing up and my granddad talking to me about farming, Mm -hmm. about agriculture. And I clearly remember him saying to me that when he was growing up and this, you know, he grew up going back through the Great Depression yeah. and, you know, the the son of homesteaders in northern Minnesota. And tough. Tough, tough go of it. But in his life and from his worldview, agriculture was conservation. Yeah. There was no separation. Mm-hmm. You, you had to be conservation-minded if you were going to make a living in agriculture. And somewhere along the line, that got co-opted. And conservation became environmentalism and took a lot of people, communities, out of the equation. And now I think what we have the luxury of of hindsight and we can look back and see the things that are successful, the things that are sustainable, are community-led efforts. They come from an expressed need and desire of communities, and we have to put the, the right pieces in place for them to be able to realize their vision mm-hmm. that to me is long-lasting conservation yep and that is what we're seeing take place in colorado today and that's an exciting future to be a part of it really is so exciting and and i didn't fully understand all that you know when i moved out here and started thinking about conservation you know i just uh, my early experience was seeing some real estate developers basically tearing up landscape and i'm like well that should just be put into a conservation easement never allow anybody out there and that's not right for a lot of reasons you know for and so one of the areas that you and i are working on is southeast colorado right and i think when people think of colorado most people who aren't from here they think about big mountains you know snow-capped peaks big white water rafting you know all that kind of stuff whereas a lot of this Time, a lot of the places we spend our time is just flat, wide open grasslands. And so, but there's also this rich community of longtime residents, longtime ranchers, farmers there. So, could you just talk a little bit about southeastern Colorado and why that's important to you and to the Gates Family Foundation? Southeastern Colorado is, in a lot of ways, a refuge as a region. Mm-hmm. It is. It's it's a it's a place that's been somewhat insulated from a lot of the other pressures that have uh, affected Colorado. Yep. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges to our work statewide is just population growth. But in southeastern Colorado, population growth is not the issue. <laughs> you know, the, the, there's a bigger issue affecting southeast communities in just staving off the out-migration 
you know, we were talking to people in communities like, you know, in Bent or Prowers County, and, you know, they're losing people at almost a double-digit percentage rate each year. And there are not that many people out there to begin with, you yeah, know? That's, it's mean, a small baseline sure. to begin with. So why it's important to us, one, is it is representative in in every fundamental way of what makes Colorado great. It's it's neighbors helping neighbors. It's a it's a, a traditional way of life that fuels these local economies. And on the ecological side, and not to lose sight of the conservation values, it is a place where large landscapes we're talking about ranches twenty, thirty thousand acres in sure. some cases, big pieces of land are still intact and managed holistically such that their 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 functions their services are largely in place and that is a huge opportunity yep but as we take a step back and look at some of the macro factors um you know these are these are ranch lands that are being managed in a lot of cases by um you know folks that are probably hoping to retire at mm-hmm. some point you know the average age of a rancher is somewhere in like mid 60s i yep. think and succession is a big issue there um the kids don't see a future for themselves in farming and ranching and as a result these uh, the 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 threat to some of these big chunks of land that have been managed for sometimes five sometimes six generations yep the the threat to those uh, to keeping those things intact is is very real and without uh, without figuring out how to anchor those places and make them viable in uh, in an evolving economy and uh, with increasing pressure um, you know that's that's really the kind of work that the Gates Family Foundation does best. Um, You know, we, uh, we are very much oriented towards systems level solutions. And that's something that we're going to be continuing to invest in. um, And why Southeastern Colorado is going to continue to be a priority for us. It's, it's of incredible importance for us to figure out, how to add the right layers of value on agricultural production in southeastern Colorado so that there is a future for that way of life. And if we do not figure that out and do it in a balanced way, in a way that works for producers and for those communities, it's going to change too. Yep. There's just no other way around it. And I'd hate to see for... Uh, you know, even even uh, places like Los Animas County, I'd hate to see for that go the way of uh, you know, like uh, you know, the area outside of Fort Collins or Weld County, mm-hmm. um, that is currently one of the hot spots for uh, the the loss of agricultural land in this state. Sure, because it, it it's it's easier to just sell off your water 
to uh, to the municipalities that that are growing double digit rates, and then subdivide your place to a, a, a with a developer and cash out. Can cash out big time, big time, yeah. Especially with that water. Well, that's and you know that that is we share the, this idea that that aspect of it all is important for conservation. But I would think even if you were talking to the most stringent environmentalist who doesn't even care about people there's such a case for the work out there because keeping these large ranches in place i mean the wildlife habitat out there and the the ecological diversity people just don't understand how how much ecological diversity is in those grasslands when you, you know when you're driving through at 90 miles an hour it looks like there's no there's nothing out there but the plants. I mean, they're bighorn sheep out there. The biggest bighorn sheep herd in the state, and nobody is knows in it. Eastern Colorado. Yeah, and nobody knows it. And so, by keeping these, it's you know, it's important. I think to emphasize that by keeping these ranches intact, these big chunks of land, it, in, it encourages the the wildlife. You know, the the wildlife to be able to thrive. The migration um, patterns, all that, all that kind of stuff. You start putting up fences, even if you don't like people being out there, you you put up fences, and it's going to mess up the wildlife. Right. Um, which is so it's kind of like a, no matter where you're coming from, it's so important that people understand how how important that chunk of land is. Well, and, and two, there's uh, there's something to be said for the fact that again, going back to this idea of it being a, a quote unquote refuge, it's a landscape that has evolved with grazing. These these big thirty thousand acre parcels. Grazing is a part of why they are yes. what they are. Yes, they they had the, the bison herds, uh, the 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 species of grasses and the soil health have all evolved to depend on that grazing regime. So agriculture really is the highest and best use. That's exactly right. That's a great point. If we're going to retain that ecological integrity, yeah. So that's really where we've got to get it figured out. That's exactly right. I think, and for people who are listening that want to read a book to understand the necessity of grazing, there's one by Jim Howell who's been on the podcast twice, named "For the Love of Land," and that was the one that kind of got my head where I finally understood understood that. <clears throat> and it, you know, because there's this idea among some environmentalists that livestock is bad. It's bad for the environment, but but you have to have that livestock to graze the unless we're going to eliminate private property rights and bring back bison we're going to have to use cows for the most part and some bison but that grass has to be grazed or else it dies and then you lose a huge um a huge plant that sequesters carbon for climate change and it's just this endless cycle the whole the whole cycle depends on that that grazing regime um and it, it it really in southeastern colorado is a combination of grazing and uh, and fire yes. historically but if you take cows off the land if you if you did that today and just said you know we're we're going to we're going to lock off hundreds of thousands of acres of grasslands and we're not going to graze them anymore that land would become a desert that that grass not not only does it anchor the soil and sequester that carbon and trap the very little rainfall that occurs out there but that's also the what what hosts all the insects 
which the birds depend on, um, and it, it, it disrupts the wildlife patterns that use it. And and uh, there is, I mean, we're Eastern Colorado, even though, like we just mentioned, people don't really identify that with bighorn sheep. It has not only a healthy population of bighorns, but it has large numbers of elk, uh, incredible numbers of mule deer, um, not to mention all the other non-game wildlife. And if you break that cycle, where are those things? They, they, they're, they're gone. Sure. They're going to go elsewhere or they're going to disappear. In that book that I mentioned, Love of Land, um, as, and if Jim Howell's listening, he needs to give me a cut of all the my promotion <laughs> of this book. But it, um, there's a great picture in there, and th- this picture th- – there are versions of this picture everywhere, but a fence line between a private ranch and a national park, I believe, somewhere in the southwest. And the national park does not allow grazing. The ranch has been grazed holistically for generations. And you look at the grass, and one side is a desert. And the side that's been grazed by these cattle for for generations, the grass is unbelievably healthy. Yeah, and it's just a and so along with the dead grass comes erosion, comes you know every everything bad, and so that's that's a point I, I talk about it on here all the time. But when I when that clicked in my head, it was such a revelation that I think it's important for people to understand that if you want to understand the landscape out here, you have to understand that grazing component. Yeah, it's it's. Something that we've got to be really careful about, I think, as a state, because Colorado is an attractive place for pe- people to move to. Yep. There's a reason why we're growing at the rate at which we're growing. Sure. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to do business, a uh, great place to recreate. But with all of these different viewpoints coming into the state from elsewhere in the country, elsewhere in the world, we've got to do a better job of allowing people to connect with what it means to live and work in the, in these rural parts of the state. Mm-hmm. And we can't just apply ideas that come from Illinois or Maryland or Florida. They don't they don't work. We That's we have point. we have you know like we said five and six generations of people that have come to understand what works in that landscape. Yep. And we should really do more to, to uh, uh, avail ourselves of that bank of information, that, that, that wealth of knowledge that exists on the ground in every one of those little, ta- little towns in southeastern Colorado, that should inform our strategies for whatever it is the, the future that region holds. Yep. Back to the community aspect. It just yeah. continues to come down to that. So when you think back to your learning process about this whole area and the region and the landscape and the people, are there any books that come to mind that have been important or that you'd recommend people read? And it doesn't necessarily have to be about Southeast Colorado, but just in your career as a conservationist. You know, it's a, it may seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but I still think the one for me that is most applicable to Southeastern Colorado is a Sand County Almanac. Yep. Um, you know, that's, that's low-hanging fruit for anybody that's interested in conservation. But what Aldo Leopold explored back in the 30s and 40s is still very much applicable today mm-hmm. in that part of the state for the same reasons. It, uh, it's 
it really speaks to, I think, the fundamental uh, value in utilizing a, a community-based approach to conservation, uh, one that works for people, that takes working lands into account, that increases uh, the, the perception of value that those working lands provide yep. in the context of a larger landscape. There's there's just nothing uh, nothing that's been done since that will dissuade me from uh, the uh, the philosophy that Aldo Leopold espoused in that book. Well, it's like it's it's like you hear these these cliches about kids. They grow up so fast that they're cliches for a reason because they're true. And that book is. <laughs> I mean, everybody says that book. Who's deeply involved in conservation because it's all. I mean, it, it is amazing what he managed to put in a relatively few number of pages. Yeah. Um, I need to I need to reread that. I need to read more about him personally because um, he just seems like such an interesting guy. This is one thing I want to talk about, and I should have just been recording all of our conversations that we've had over over <laughs> because they've all been so interesting. And um, one thing I remember we talked about at dinner one time was the importance of aggression, and I don't mean aggression in a bad way, but it's kind of leaning into it in the conservation world because I think a lot of people think of conservation as hey it's nonprofit work it's feel good work and you know everybody wins but i think by applying this mindset that you would take if you were in private equity or if you were in the tech world or if you were in investment banking or whatever where this is business and there's serious consequences here and we're not going to be we're not going to be dishonest and we're not going to be cutthroats but we're going to be aggressive and we're going to lean into it can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that because i really i learned a lot when we were talking about that yeah it's it's something that uh i feel very strongly about um we have at at the foundation uh the gates family foundation there's a a motto that goes back to the uh the family member who founded the foundation uh, throw your hat across the creek Mm -hmm. and that was something that uh that they applied as a philosophy in their business. And it's something that we take seriously in how we, uh, how we support the, the work that we give grants to. You've got to be willing to take some risk. And what we've seen, I think, is uh, as, a, as a state in a lot of ways, there's been paralysis, whether it's in terms of, of – Looking anew at, at how we manage and use water, uh, looking anew at the agricultural economy and how we can prop that up and, and help it evolve, all of those things require some measure of risk. Mm-hmm. And we've got to have more folks that are willing to stick their neck out and try new things. May not succeed, but we'll learn. Yep. And I think it's. I, I probably feel strongly about this because of my own learning style, a, a very much experiential trial and error kind 